We're Luke 22 this morning, and Tanner didn't mention in his announcements that at the end of the month, he will become the senior pastor of Verbatim Church. I know that if you're newer here, you're thinking, what? I just came. Now, it's interesting to me that I have three Sundays left, not that you will never see my face again. Uh, unless you don't ever want to see this face again. But <laughs> I have three more Sundays, and we have three chapters left in the Gospel of Luke. And I just really want us to glean all that we can in these last three chapters. And to realize the timing is interesting as the shift of the full weight of the ministry is going to shift on to the disciples. And of course, the Lord is with them. But when you look at that group of disciples, you think, are they ready? What's the answer? What's the answer? No. And you might look at Tanner or anybody else around here and say, I don't know, are they ready? None of us is ready. But there, ha there is a time when when the Lord is ready. And I think while it is scary to make a change and these kinds of changes, probably the most important lessons we can ever learn about the Lord is that whatever he calls us to do, he enables us to do. Often when we think about our serving God, we often make it about us. We either are overly confident and we come a bit, be, we, we get proud and puffed up and go, look what I have to offer. Or we're so, we're so aware of our weaknesses that we, we magnify our insecurities so much that it sabotages our ability to be used by God. God is able to take any of you and work through your life. And in fact, God delights in using weak vessels. If I know anything about myself is that I'm a weak vessel. And that God has somehow taken whoever I was and enabled me to do something for him. And it has now been... 35, 40 years that I've been in the ministry. And I am completely confident that the Lord is working here among you. The key things are, do you love the Lord with all of your heart? It's either yes or no. And you might even say, yeah, oh, yes, I do. But that's going to be put to the test. The Lord really is not saying, what are you going to do for me? But it's really about what we allow him to do through us. Do you love me? And then do you want the Lord to use your life? And if that's what you want, then we really need to be disciples of Jesus. A disciple means a student, 
a learner, like a pupil. And the amazing thing is that the student becomes like the teacher. If you watch, observe him, do what he says, you will become like Jesus. And in fact, the term Christian means those who were like Jesus, of the sect of Jesus. It wasn't a compliment. It was a criticism. It were the unbelievers who looked at the followers of Jesus and said, well, they're just like him. It was, an, it was more of an accusation. And praise the Lord if somebody accuses you of being like Jesus. Amen? Amen. The whole theme of the Gospel of Luke was Luke 19.10, where Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that was me. I was lost. In these events that lead up to the cross in Luke 22 and 23, I want us to just see the sequence of events, but as well remember that whatever the Lord endured for suffering, it was meant for you. You see, you are the guilty one, not Jesus. It's so easy to look at these things and go, wow, that's amazing what happened to Jesus. He came into this world to identify with our suffering and with our weakness, and in turn was accused as being a sinner and suffered the penalty for the sins of the world. That means what he is going through is in your place. It's you that is accused of being a sinner. It is you that is is deserving of the sentence of death. That, That is a completely different scenario than Jesus who died for the sins of the world. It sounds a bit very biblical and impersonal. Have you ever faced such a enormous crisis that you thought, I don't know how I'm ever going to get out of this. And somebody swooped in and said, I'll take care of that for you. Let me pay that for you. I'll fix it. Has it ever happened? There is no way out of eternal separation from God unless there is a mediator, a savior, who will step in and pay the price for your redemption. The consequences for our sin is so great, we don't even realize what's coming. We've been protected by it. We don't even know the dangers that are coming. And yet, the Bible says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so in these final weeks that, that I'm here, I'm asking the Lord, Lord, what, what, do, what do you you want me to say? What are the, the final things that I want to leave them? 
with. And I want you to know how much the Lord loves you. I want you to know that he's inviting you into a personal, intimate relationship with himself. And that if you are willing, he wants to work through your life to impact people around you. Of everything I have to say, it boils down to those three things. God loves you. He's inviting you into an intimate relationship with himself. It's personal. It's not religious. It's not performance-based. And if you are willing, the third part, you may not be willing. If you are willing, he wants to work through your life to make an impact in the, the community of Albany. That is the purpose of every church. That's not just what this church is about, that is the very purpose of the church. And if a church fails to do that, it is not living up to its calling of a church. If it's fallen into just programs and events and activities and whether we can attract people or not, it has forgotten its very purpose for existing. I want you to know that however God works through your lives and through the church, it is not based on what you can do for God. It is entirely based on what Christ has already done for you. You should write that down and look at it every day. Because every day... I feel insecure that I haven't measured up to what God wants for me. Do you feel that way? I feel that way every day, and I have to remind myself it is not based on what I do for God. It's based on what he has already done for me. Whenever we get this insecurity of we have a prayer request, and God, I need your help, and, but then we're not quite sure if God's going to come through. Does God love me enough to answer this prayer? You know what Paul says in Romans 8? If God's already given us his son, why would he withhold anything else? He's already sent his, do- his son to die on the cross for you. Why are you worried about whether or not he loves you enough to take care of this financial issue or this other challenge in your life? The question of God's love for you is already settled. It's already settled. You are not able to do enough to measure up to that. You're not able. So relax and enjoy this relationship with God. It feels uncomfortable because you feel like, well, I should be doing something. I should be better. You're not. You are like the adopted child who is brought into the family of God, and you just have to get comfortable with being part of the family of God. Sometimes adopted children are 
are uncomfortable at first. When I was in high school, my best friend's uncle was in prison and got out of prison. And he was around some of the family activities for a while. And then suddenly he was gone. I didn't see him anymore. And I said, I said to my friend, what happened to your uncle? He's just suddenly gone. Well, he was, Terry, you know, he was out of prison. He was on parole. And his uncle was so uncomfortable, so awkward living free that he intentionally violated his parole so they would send him back to prison. And honestly, I think a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with freedom. They're awkward living this free life in the presence and the peace of God. So they act out to get back under the old issues, the old problems. And I want to encourage you to be, to be comfortable in the family of God. You belong, not because you're good, but because the Lord is good. And his goodness is so great that he invited you to come in. And it was purely our part to say yes or no. Yes, I accept that. So we're going to go through the events and I'm not going to read all the verses of chapter 22 and 23, but I'm just going to tell the story as Luke has given it to us. Now, Luke 21, we talked about the signs of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, religious deception. That was last Sunday. What has been completely occupying the news this week? Earthquakes. The count, uh, my wife checked this morning, the count, the death toll is up to 28,000. Turkey, Syria, and did you hear about earthquakes in Israel? One of the first things that happens when these major catastrophes happen is you know who are the aid workers that travel to these places to help? It's the Christians and Jews. It's us who rise to the occasion. And what a testimony that is to the world. The different aid relief organizations that have been started by Christians around the world. I thought the timing of that was interesting. So after that discussion with the disciples, now we are counting down the events that lead to the cross. There is then at the beginning of Luke 22, Luke records the plot to kill Jesus. Verses 1 through 6. It is the feast of Passover. Thousands and thousands of Jews have traveled to Israel, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Now, the Feast of Passover is looking back to the 10 plagues in Egypt in the Old Testament. And it was the last plague, the 10th plague, where the sentence of death was on the firstborn of each household in Egypt. And God said to the people of Israel, I want you to sacrifice a spotless lamb 
sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house, as well as the top of the doorway and the, the threshold. By the way, that would make a cross. And when the angel of death comes through Israel, it will pass over those households with the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts, and your household will be spared. And so every year the Jews celebrate Passover. Literally, that's what it means. Death passes over this house. John the Baptist would say of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Passover Lamb for the household of Israel. Jesus is crucified on Passover. Think about that. He has been observed. From the day he made his triumphal entry, he has been observed like households all over Israel have brought a little lamb into the house to observe it for four days to see if it was, in fact, a spotless lamb. They became attached to it. Then it would be sacrificed. The the blood would be sprinkled on the doorposts. They would actually roast the lamb and eat it together in celebrating of Passover. But Judas has made a covenant, an agreement with the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus. The plot is there. Jesus sends the disciples out to prepare for Passover supper, verses 7 through 23, tells them they're going to find a man who will lead them to an upper room where they can prepare the meal. And in this meal, it's an amazing study. You might do that all on your own to study the Passover meal because the symbolisms of the gospel and communion are all right there in the Passover supper. But this meal remembers what God did in sparing Israel from the death of the firstborn. The angel of the death passes over. Communion, which we observe here at church, is taken directly from the Passover supper. There would be three loaves of bread there on the table, and in the middle loaf would be a broken matzah, And Jesus would take that bread and say, this is my body broken for you. That loaf that was always there, part of the Passover meal, represented the broken body of Jesus Christ. He would take the cup, which was part of the the wine that they would drink, one of the cups, and he would say, this cup is my blood, which is shed for you. And of both of these, the bread and the cup, he would say, do this in remembrance of me. The bread, his body beaten. Now, his bones were not broken because it says in the Old Testament, not a bone of his would be broken. And the soldiers didn't break his bones like they did to the other um, criminals hanging on the cross. Jesus was already dead thrust a spear in his side, and out came the water mixed with blood, which tells us that he 
physically died of a ruptured heart. When that happens, the pericardial sac that surrounds the heart uh, fills with a mixture of water and blood. So in eating that bread, it symbolizes becoming one with him. And all those around the table would take a piece of that one loaf and eat it. And everybody, all of us would take a piece of that one loaf. And that same loaf is becoming a part of each of our bodies. And we are all partaking of Jesus and becoming one with him. And in the communion, he is saying, this is the new covenant, which I am giving to you. The new covenant, the old covenant, which is under the law. And required them to keep the law is put away. The new covenant is entirely based in grace, not law. It is entirely based on what God has done for us. So if you ever catch yourself feeling like you have to perform or earn your way, I want you to remember that's the old covenant and it's been put away. You and I are not under a works relationship with God. We're under a love relationship with God. Verse 24 to 30, Jesus promises honor to the disciples in the kingdom of God. And it's interesting that this whole discussion, even right up to the hours before the cross, the disciples are having their favorite discussion. Do you know what it was? They're arguing about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, that's not like me at all. I have never worried about that. I'm completely telling a lie right now. (laughs) How many days, how many years of ministry have I worried about whether or not anybody recognizes me? Whether or not somebody thought that was the most amazing sermon I ever preached. It is so part of our nature to want to be recognized, to want status. And I'm pretty much just like these disciples. And you know, the Lord knows who they are. He knows who you are. Your insecurity, does anybody see me? Does anybody love me? And even in the moments where that's all I can think of, the Lord is is giving his life for me. The Lord is saying, Terry, I love you. Terry, I love you. Calm the heck down. I hear those words in my head. (laughs) But he says to the disciples, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called the benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. So he's promising them not to worry about trying to be great now. Be a servant, and in the coming kingdom of God, you will be honored for your service. This life is not all that there is. Verses 31 to 34, Jesus prays for Peter. 
Jesus prays for Peter. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. When you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Do you think Peter was completely sincere when he made that proclamation that he, he would do anything for the Lord, that he would die for the Lord? I think Peter was sincere. But he was blind to the fact that he wouldn't be able to keep that commitment. I know I've made a lot of promises to the Lord that I couldn't keep. And when I've failed, I feel horrible about myself. Those are great lessons to learn. Have you learned those lessons? It's good to see what you and I are really made of. The, I think of the number of times I have felt bad about my sin and I've said, Lord, I will never do that again. I will always serve you. And then I do it again. And yet the Lord knew ahead of time what I was going to do. The Lord has been interceding for me. The Bible says that the Lord ever lives to make intercession for us. And the Lord knows whether I'm going to come through it or not. He will help me come through it. And he says, Peter, when you come through this, when you return to me, you're going to strengthen your brothers. All through the ministry of, G uh, of Jesus with the disciples, Peter's the loud mouth saying things that were boastful. It was the best thing for Peter to fail. Because his, then his eyes were opened. And you know what the, the restoration for Peter was? It's not here in Luke, but it's in John's gospel. Jesus, just after the resurrection, went to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? Asked him that three times. Peter responded two times, Lord, you know that I like you. Do you know that? Jesus said, Peter, do you agape me? Which is, do you have a divine fervent love? Peter told the truth and said, Lord, you know that I phileo you, which means I'm fond of you. Peter stopped making proclamations that he couldn't keep. And I love the fact that the Lord comes down to where I am. He comes down to where you are to help me come up to where he is. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. Peter denies the Lord. Now they've, they arrest the Lord. Take him off. And Peter follows at a distance, warming himself by a fire nearby where they're questioning Jesus. And it's there where 
people begin to say, well, aren't you one of his disciples? Two times by young girls. And he denies, this big, strong fisherman denies to these young girls, no, I'm not one of his disciples. And then he's asked a third time and he swears he is not one of the disciples. Have you ever done anything that was worse than what Peter did? We like to categorize sin, don't we? Well, do you know what that person did? All the while, you and I do things that are pretty bad. Just even attitudes in our hearts that God hates. A proud look God hates. And yet, Culturally, we have certain sins that are the really bad ones. Have I, have I, have you ever done anything that was worse than Peter on this moment denying that he even knew Jesus? And yet the Lord loved him, forgives him, and prays for him and continues to use him throughout his life. And I say that because how many of you sitting here have disqualified yourself from serving the Lord because of some sin you think you've committed? Maybe you did commit, but you think it is so bad, God could never use your life. God uses sinners. And Paul would say to Timothy, that Christ died to save sinners, of which I, Paul, I am the chiefest of sinners. Don't make this about how good or bad you are. This is about how good the Lord is. Jesus prays for himself. We go over to the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, verses 39 to 53. Jesus takes the disciples to the Mount of Olives, to that Garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press. And it's there where Jesus will sweat great drops of blood in the agony of the coming suffering. He is being pressed out in the Garden of the Olive Press. He takes all the disciples into the Garden. Then he goes a little farther with Peter, James, and John. And he asks them to wait there. And he says, I want you to pray with me. And then Jesus goes a little farther. It says a stone's throw. And he prays to the Father. And it says, he prays, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke writes, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The cults like to say, well, Jesus can't be the son of God 
because he was in submission to the father. He would say, I do only those things that please the father. The father is greater than I. But the Bible plainly tells us in Philippians 2 and other places that though being in the form of God, he became like us, taking the form of human flesh. He set aside his glory. He did not set aside his deity. And when he was on the earth, he was both God and man, existing in the form of God, but veiled in human flesh. He willingly became weak like us. And people say, well, he can't be God. He had to depend on the Father. He, he submitted to the Father. And submission is not inequality. If a child submits to the parent, we are still equal in nature. We are only different in position at that time. My child asks permission for me to do something. They are still equal in value as a human being. I just have the position of greater authority. So when Jesus says, I do those things only that please the Father, he wasn't saying I'm not equal to the Father. He's saying, because I love my Father, I'm submitting to him. Greater is not inequality. It's only a statement of position. To do the Father's will. Now, Jesus says to the Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. You should be asking, is what possible? The cup is the cup of his suffering. The cup of the cross. And the question is, what possible? Your salvation. Delivering you from the sentence of death. Is it possible to save you me, the world, by any other means except by Jesus going to the cross? No, it's not possible. Because you see, God is just and fair. The eye for an eye passage in the Old Testament, essentially that was not permission for Israel to get vengeance. It's a, it's a principle of justice. The punishment matches the crime. Eye for eye. Man sinned, and the sentence of man's sin was death. So if that was the penalty, what was the payment that would redeem man from that sentence of death? The shedding of blood. And all through the Old Testament, the principle, the pre uh, the precedence is set for a substitute to pay the penalty. The sacrifice of, of animals in the temple was substitutionary. The whole phrase of a scapegoat is a substitute sacrifice to pay for another person's sin. But for God just to say, well, 
you know, all sins are forgiven, all debts are forgiven, you know, that would actually make God unjust. Do you know that? If you want God to be fair and just, the punishment must be carried out for the crimes committed. Or God is not fair. If you commit a traffic violation and stand in front of the judge, if that judge is just, he requires the payment, the penalty. And there's only three options. You pay the fine. You go to jail. Or a third person, someone else pays the fine for you. Jesus stepped down out of heaven to pay the penalty for you. He did it because he is just. Because he loves you. And because he doesn't want you to suffer eternal separation from God. Amen? If it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. The answer is no, it is not possible. So God ministered to him. Peter denies the Lord, just as Jesus said in verses 54 to 62. And Peter went out and wept over that. Jesus is mocked and beaten, verses 63 to 65. They blindfold him. And they strike him in the face, and he doesn't know where the blows are coming from. And they mock him and say, well, if you're a prophet, then tell us, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Jesus is led off and then questioned by Jewish leaders. At verse 67, it says, they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Verse 69, hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. If you ever want a statement of the deity of Christ, that's it. Are you the Christ? You have said it. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand. That's a, it's a statement of equality with the Father. Then they all said, are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you say that I am. And others, yes, you, you just said it. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Now, according to the law, it would be blasphemy and deserving of death for anyone to claim to be God. Unless it is true. It is blasphemy unless it's true. But Jesus will not answer their questions because they've had three plus years to observe the evidence 
that he is in fact the son of God. He is the Messiah. The signs are given in the Old Testament. The lame will walk. The blind will see. The leper will be cleansed. The dead will be raised. All of the the predictions were given. When you see these things happen, this is him. It's, it's, It's so easy that a child could pay attention. It's so easy that even I could figure this out. And I think it's funny that people say, you know, you Christians have made it so narrow, so difficult to go to heaven. I have to, no, God has made it the easiest possible. The easiest possible. It is so obvious that Jesus is the one And then what my part is, your part is, is so simple. I believe in him or I don't. How simple could that be? What's narrow about that is that this is the only choice. There is no other choice. So if you don't want that choice... There is no other way to be saved. And in fact, that is what the Bible calls the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit to believe on Jesus. And if you say no, that sin cannot be forgiven. Why? Because there's no other way to be saved. You rejected the very medicine that would save your life. So don't reject the only remedy and say, doctor, do you have some other way to cure me of this terminal illness? The answer is no. I just gave it to you. Why would I reject the only means of saving my life? It's pride. It's not a lack of information. It's completely my heart. So I want to challenge you today as we're closing the service. Have you found some excuse to reject Jesus? That's really a distraction from the real issue, which is that you don't want to yield your life to Jesus Christ because you see what he's asking you to come into is an intimate, personal love relationship. Not religion, not a certain number of Sundays to show up at church, not tithing, not performance, not anything else, but other than do you love me? It's yes or no. And we understand that if it's yes, then you know that you have to put away other things that don't belong in a relationship with God. And when you're ready for that, then you have the very thing you've always wanted. To know the peace and the power and the purpose of God in your life. Now, many of you have already received the Lord, but you're not really living like you have this love relationship with the Lord. You're really so stuck in a performance relationship and you're miserable there. That is, that is one of the worst places to be in life, to be saved 
and yet trying to perform and be good enough. That is horrible. You will never have peace in that place of performance. It won't work. So as we close the service today, I want you to just either receive the Lord or come to that place of yielding your life to the Lord. And let him, let him do through you what he wants to do. We've all seen ourselves be like Peter, right? Making great promises that we couldn't keep. I've lost count how many times I've made promises that I couldn't keep. And you didn't surprise the Lord at any of those failures.